If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20. Isaiah 8.20 and there we read to the law and to the testimony if they speak not according to this word it is because there is no light in them We continue today in our study of National Covenanting and the Solemn League and Covenant, having now embarked upon an historical application of the moral principles we have found in Holy Scripture. In part one of our historical defense, we considered the historical circumstances leading up to surrounding and following the Solemn League and Covenant. In part two of our historical defense of the Solemn League and Covenant, we shall briefly consider the document itself, and I emphasize briefly, there's so much more time that I would like to devote to the content of the Solemn League and Covenant, but in the interest of being able to work through this in a timely manner, I'm doing a rather brief overview of this. But we want to briefly today consider the document itself and the morality of the provisions found in the Solemn League and Covenant. For a covenant that is not good, righteous, and moral cannot be lawful for us to take or lawful for us to be bound by no matter how sincere the people may be who take it. If it's not a lawful covenant, it does not bind us. An immoral covenant is no binding covenant at all. But how do we determine whether the Solemn League and Covenant, or any other covenant for that matter, is good, righteous, and moral? There must be an infallible standard or ruler by which we can measure it in order that we might know and be confident that the doctrine and principles taught in the Solemn League and Covenant are good and righteous and moral. Well, let us turn at this time to Isaiah 8, verse 20 and to the surrounding verses. And here we find the alone infallible standard of our faith and our practice. If this covenant, the solemnly covenant, if this covenant does not measure up to Scripture, it is because there is no light in it. And it can only bind us if it does indeed measure up to Scripture. Well, first, as we look at Isaiah 8.20, just to give us, a, again, a scriptural introduction to our historical uh, defense today, Isaiah writes to a religious people, a covenant people, the covenant people of God, who have fallen away from the faith that they once professed. 
The doctrines and commandments of God have been left behind for worship, for instruction, that is, of man's invention. And thus Isaiah speaks to the people of Israel God's word when he says in Isaiah 8.16, Bind up the testimony, seal the law, my disciples. Dear ones, there is a sense in which prophecies may be said to be sealed when they are preserved and await fulfillment at God's appointed time in the future, as was said to Daniel in Daniel 12.4. But here, Isaiah does not command that prophecy be sealed, but rather that God's testimony be bound up and God's law be sealed. God's testimony most likely refers to God's wonderful acts in history. And God's law most likely refers to God's doctrine and precepts that are found in his word. To bind up and to seal both refer to acts of holding fast and preserving that which is revealed. When God reveals his truth to us in history, and in scripture according to verse 16 we are not to let it slip from our firm grasp but rather to bind it to ourselves and seal it that it not be lost diluted or compromised second note that Isaiah makes it clear that when we do, as Christ's disciples, bind up his testimony and seal his law, that we will be mocked, ridiculed, looked at as weird and strange. In Isaiah 8.18 we read, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. Why were those faithful disciples of Isaiah who followed the teaching of Isaiah considered to be signs and wonders amongst the covenant people of Israel? Because they stood for the truth, whereas the vast majority of Israel departed from the truth. And so they became signed and wonder to be looked upon. Although Isaiah spoke of faithful disciples as being spiritual children whom the Lord had given to him, dear ones, this ultimately points to all those given by God to Christ that he should save, forgive, justify, nourish, and cherish as his own. For this verse here in Isaiah 8.18 is quoted in Hebrews 2.13 in reference to Christ that God has given to Christ a people of his own children of his own to care for and nourish you see here Isaiah is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ but just as the faithful disciples of Isaiah who were a few compared to the many backsliding in Judah and Israel 
just as they were appointed by God to be signs and wonders, to be thought strange, weird, because they did not follow the multitude, so are the faithful disciples of Christ today appointed by God to be signs and wonders amongst the vast majority at the present time. So we are, likewise, to live in an age that considers us, even amongst professing Christians, to be odd and strange because of the beliefs, because of the doctrines, the manner of worship and church government that we do profess, believe. Because we hold to the binding obligation of the solemn league and covenant. Because we believe this is a biblical covenant. We find ourselves walking contrary to the multitude today. We find that we are at every turn walking contrary to the grain. Very difficult. Not where we would necessarily choose to be by way of that which is most comfortable but it is where God has put us and notice that in Isaiah 8.18 it says the Lord hath given me and my children for signs and wonders it's God who has put us in the place we are presently for signs and wonders even as it says in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 18 through 19, that heresies must come in order to demonstrate and to show those who are approved and to show those who are disapproved, those who are faithful and those who are unfaithful. And so let us take courage today, dear ones, that it's God who has appointed us to be signs and wonders when we must stand out from the crowd for what is faithful and right and true. The third, Isaiah warns his faithful disciples that some in Israel will come to them and tell them to look elsewhere for answers to matters of faith and practice. In Isaiah 8.19, when he says, and when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God? In Isaiah's day, it was to those who looked to the dead to get answers, to to obtain wisdom that he has in view here. Just as today there are those who will go to try to bring back uh, as Saul did, King Saul, to bring back the spirit of Samuel to go to wizards or to familiar spirits to find out information about the future uh, various things, answers to various questions. So it was happening in that particular day and age, in Isaiah's day, if this was happening. However, dear ones, even if it is not to the dead that we go for our answers, if we go to the living, 
rather than the dead, rather than going to God, whether it is to the living or to the dead, we might as well be seeking our answers from the dead. Ancient teachers and divines may be helpful. Ancient councils and creeds may be useful. But it is always, as we find in Isaiah 8.20, it is always to the law and to the testimony that we are to rest in trust and confidence. For if the dead or the living speak not according to this infallible rule of practice and faith, there is no light in them, according to Isaiah 8.20. When we ground our supreme trust and confidence for what we believe and practice in people, whether they be living or dead, in antiquity, in the majority, in sincerity, or in any other created thing, we will be misled, deceived, and deluded. Dear ones, here is an exhortation to always ask, this question what do the scriptures teach about this doctrine or this practice here alone is our confidence to the law and to the testimony it is what separated dear ones the Roman Catholic Church from the Protestants who separated from the Roman Catholic Church the Roman Catholics sought answers from the dead They sought answers from those who had and based their faith upon the collected testimony of the church. That became their standard. It was not to the law and to the testimony. The reformers said, sola scriptura. It is to the law and to the testimony ultimately that we appeal. We can certainly look to divines, to to councils and to creeds for help, but it is to the law and to the testimony that we rest our faith upon. And so today we bring the Solemn League and Covenant to the same rule. That is, to the law and to the testimony. Let us briefly examine, and again I underline the word briefly, let us briefly examine the Solemn League and Covenant, bringing it to the law and testimony of God. I'm sure that there will be many other questions that you might have, even from this lecture today, but I I encourage you, if you want to write and ask me, I'll do my best to respond as quickly as I can, but hopefully this will be helpful in showing the morality of this covenant. The parts of which the solemnly and covenant is comprised are these. First of all, the preface. Second, the six articles. And thirdly, the conclusion. It might be helpful for you if you have a copy. I might have mentioned this at the very beginning so that you could uh, have a copy before you, but, but if you have a copy of the Solemn League and Covenant in front of you, it might be helpful to, to follow as I go through uh, the, the document. I'm not going to be 
reading the, the sections, I think that would just uh, uh, make it longer. I'm just going to be talking about the sections uh, in the Solemn League and Covenant. The preface, first of all then, the preface contains a brief historical account of who were the parties to this covenant. One party consisted of church and state and all classes of people in the kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland as one moral person mutually bound together. The other party to this covenant was the Most High God to whom they lifted up their hands and swore this covenant. Since some have questioned whether the original covenanters viewed God as one of the parties in this covenant, we will have more to say about this in the next lecture. It is certainly good, righteous, and moral for nations, churches, and people to swear a national covenant to God, and not only Israel, but Gentile nations as well. And we looked at this and considered this in Isaiah 19, verses 18 through 25, where in the future we see that God will call entire nations to him. And they will make a national vow and covenant to the Lord to be his people. And God says of them that they are his people. He calls them my people Egypt. The preface also contains some historical circumstances leading up to the Solemn League and Covenant and the stated ends of this covenant, which are these. First and foremost, the glory of God. Second, the advancement and preservation of Christ's kingdom and religion. And thirdly, the security of civil liberty and peace. These are indeed, I would hope it uh, would go without saying, these are indeed biblical ends, scriptural ends to pursue. The second main point, the six articles. The six articles. Article 1. Here is stated the moral principle that we are bound to preserve the Reformed religion where it is already established, as it was in Scotland at that time, and at the same time to carry forward and advance the same Reformation where it does not yet exist or is not yet complete, as it was incomplete in England and Ireland at that time. Are these not biblical principles? We find in Philippians chapter 3, verse 16. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Let us preserve and hold fast to that degree of reformation to which we have attained. This is what they covenanted to do to preserve the reformation within Scotland. This certainly is true of our own personal lives but it naturally would be true within a nation as a moral person as well. 
Furthermore, we read in Revelation chapter 3 the same moral principle given to us. Revelation 3, verse 3. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. Hold fast that which thou hast heard and received. That which thou hast professed, hold fast. Do not backslide. Do not, do not uh, ignore, neglect. Do not let it fall from your grasp. With regard to that which is yet to be reformed, the Apostle Paul exhorts Titus in Titus 1.5 concerning this moral principle. For he says, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. Those things that are lacking, wanting, where there has not been reformation, it is a principle that is given to Titus, but it is a moral principle that we ourselves are responsible for in our own lives and in our own circumstances to promote reformation where it is needed, to pray for reformation where it is needed. This is what we pray for in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 10 in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. You see, there is an assumption here in Article 1, that the Reformed religion is biblical Christianity and that it alone must be preserved and advanced. For we cannot morally preserve and advance any false religion or anything that is contrary to what God has revealed in His Word. To do so, to advance any false religion or anything that is contrary what God has revealed in his word would be to break even the first commandment thou shalt have no other gods before me and so we see that article 1 is biblical it is a moral principle what is stated therein article 2 in the second article we vow to God to endeavor in our own lives and in our own various callings and places of influence to uproot all unbiblical doctrine, worship, discipline, and church government. Note that here schisms are specifically mentioned as that which must be uprooted. Schisms within the, the church. Within the church of Jesus Christ. Divisions. Sects sectarianism we might call it denominationalism is to be uprooted it is not something to be tolerated it is something to be uprooted there was a solemn league and covenant 
does not promote denominationalism. It uproots it. For denominationalism promotes schism and division. It uproots it. For denominationalism promotes schism and division within the church. Therefore, one cannot consistently uphold the moral principles of the Solemn League and Covenant while yet upholding denominationalism in supporting or visiting churches that allow an open communion or that allow members to visit other churches. All matters pertaining, dear ones, to sound religion are to be purged and rooted out. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, in the Great Commission, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. This is a moral principle Therefore, to teach what is taught by Christ and to uproot what is not taught by Christ. That is a moral principle incumbent upon us all in our various callings and places of influence. Deuteronomy 12, verses 30 through 32. Likewise, we find there the moral principle taught take heed to thyself that thou be not snared by following them after that they be destroyed from before thee that is the various nations around them who had various religions and that thou inquire not after their gods saying how did these nations serve their gods even so will I do likewise Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God for every abomination to the Lord which he hated have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. What things soever I command you, observe to do it, thou shalt not add thereto nor diminish from it. Dear ones, this isn't legalism. This is love for God when we do so, not in order to be justified, but in order to walk faithfully in the ways that God has revealed to us, to show our love to Him, is to seek to obey Him. We're not justified by works, but we are, dear ones, to show and reveal our sanctification by our godly works, by walking in faithfulness to the Lord out of love. <clears throat> that which was subsequently written by the Westminster Assembly to promote biblical doctrine, worship, discipline, and church government were the following documents. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechism promoting biblical doctrine, the directory for the public worship of God promoting biblical worship, the form of Presbyterian church government promoting biblical discipline 
and church government. Article 3. In this article, we promise to God to preserve the rights and privileges of the civil authorities as they promote the true Reformed religion and preserve and defend the lawful civil liberties of their people. Here is warranted a lawful submission to the civil magistrate who is, quote, the minister of God to thee for good, according to Romans 13.4. However, to those civil magistrates or to that civil government that establishes an immoral constitution and refuses to amend it, or that blatantly, obstinately, and persistently rules against the law of God as found in the Ten Commandments, such a civil ruler, civil government, or civil constitution is not, is not the minister to thee for good, but is rather a minister to thee for evil, because it has taken the place of God over that nation and made itself the national God and religion. In such cases, we are not bound to acknowledge such rulers to be God's ministers to be for good. In fact, we are bound to, to the contrary, we are bound to testify against them and not to recognize them in taking an oath to uphold or defend them or their godless constitution. And by taking an oath, that can be done either personally, individually, taking an oath, or by way of voting for someone who must take such an oath. In either case, in either case, it is supporting and swearing. If we do so personally or we do so by way of a proxy, by way of a representative, we are, we are swearing to uphold that which is false, that which is immoral, if it is an immoral constitution and civil government. Because the federal constitution states that it, rather than God's law, is the supreme law of the land, there can be no sound moral basis by which such a civil government rules. The Solemn League and Covenant does not call for revolutionary violence by individuals against an immoral civil government by private individuals, but it does call those in covenanted lands not to own as lawful that government that will not kiss the sun. There may come a time when it is necessary to defend ourselves by way of violence against violence that is brought against us. But at the present time, we are indeed not to own as a lawful silver government that government that will not kiss the sun. In Psalm 2, in fact, those civil governments, those official governments and representatives that will not own the Son of God will be crushed, will be destroyed, for they have disobeyed the Lord. That is their duty. That is, again, a minister of God to thee for good, one who owns Jesus Christ. Article 4. In this article, we solemnly swear to God that we will endeavor to bring all those in church and state to appropriate censure, that's in, uh, with regard to the, the church, and 
appropriate punishment, that is, with regard to the state, those who wickedly hinder this covenant of reformation in church and state. This is also a biblical principle. This is also a moral biblical principle. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 13 that if any seeks to dissuade you, to lead you astray from the truth, even if it is one as close as your wife, even if it is your own mother or your father, your son or your daughter that seeks to lead you away, you are not to protect them, you are not to defend them, you are to bring them before the courts. You are to love God more than you love those relatives. And so the Lord says, that in a covenanted nation, and this is what we are bound to in the Solemn League and Covenant, that we are bound, required, to bring those who are wickedly hindering, promoting that which is contrary to the covenanted reformation in church and state, we are to bring them to those appropriate lawful authorities to either be censured or to be punished. Obviously, this has to do with obstinacy in their... They refuse to, to repent. They are obstinate in their views and they are influencing and leading others astray by their own moral influence. This is what Paul argues for in 1 Corinthians 5.7 when he says to purge out the old leaven that is in your midst. Purge it out for a little leaven will leaven the whole lump if it's not dealt with. Where the church or state will not censure or punish covenant breakers, obviously we cannot use that as a means to uh, to uh, bring censure and punishment but we can even in situations in which church or state will not fulfill their covenanted duties we can continue to pray for such reformation and we can continue to to instruct and to persuade and to, to defend the truth that we can do and that we are therefore responsible to do. Article 5. In the fifth article, we own before God that we will not only preserve and promote this covenanted reformation in religion and government to ourselves and those living at the present time as those who are bound by this covenant, but we will also preserve and promote this covenanted reformation in religion and government to all our posterity who are likewise bound by the solemn league and covenant. You see, it is not only those living that are bound by lawful national covenants, but also their posterity, whether national posterity, ecclesiastical posterity, or familial posterity. You see, this is also 
a biblical principle that posterity is bound to keep that which is a faithful, lawful national covenant as we see in Deuteronomy chapter 29 verses 10 through 15. There, not only were those who were present, Moses said, bound by this covenant, but also those who are not here are bound by this covenant. Those not yet born are bound by this covenant. We also noted in the past, in past sermons in Joshua chapter 9, the covenant made with the Gibeonites. Uh, a lawful, though rash, a lawful uh, civil covenant that was made with the Gibeonites continued to bind Israel for generations and their posterity for generations. Insomuch that hundreds of years later under Saul, when he persecuted the Gibeonites, God brought judgment upon Israel during David's reign. And David sought God as to why this judgment was brought upon them. And in 2 Samuel 21.1, the Lord says that it was brought upon Israel because Saul had persecuted the Gibeonites, breaking the covenant made with the Gibeonites hundreds of years prior to that time. God remembers covenants. God does not forget covenants made, either where he is a witness or a party to. Now, we will spend a significant amount of time in future lectures seeking to show from historical documents that the American colonies and and Canada were also the national posterity in view when this covenant was sworn. Article 6. In this last article... We acknowledge that we are bound to help and to defend fellow covenanters who stand for these truths against the scorn, ridicule, and attacks brought against the covenanted reformation. Obviously, we're to stand for, uh, for all Christians who stand for the truth. Insofar as they do stand for the truth, we want to stand for what they are standing for. Not for their errors, but for the truth that they stand for. But we do stand with, shoulder to shoulder, with fellow covenanters who adhere to the same covenanted reformation and promoting this reformation. We stand with them against, as we said, the scorn, ridicule, and attacks brought. We also promise to God that we will not give way ourselves either to indifference or defection from our stated profession in this cause of a covenant of reformation. See, dear ones, we not only can defect by actually changing our views and our doctrine, as many have done, but we also can simply become indifferent to the truths that we have professed by way of the covenant of reformation. We can become lukewarm and become neutral with regard to these truths so that they become something that is not really meaningful to us any longer. So that it is not something that we think about, pray about, confess sin about in our breaking 
these moral principles in our own lives and families and churches and nations. We need to stand together, dear ones. We either stand together or we fall together. We battle together and we are attacked together. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. How true it is. And how we must have the spirit, the moral principle, therefore, that is found in Galatians 6.2 in coming alongside to aid, to help, to pray for, to bear the burdens of fellow covenanters. In Galatians 6.2 or Galatians 6.1 and 2 Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Certainly this pertains to, again, all Christians. And the, the command in verse 2 pertains to all Christians as well. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. But if it pertains to all Christians, it certainly pertains to those to whom we are bound by way of a national covenant by way of an ecclesiastical covenant. It especially pertains to us as we own the same covenant. <clears throat> we stand, dear ones, we stand united in covenant with our God to pray for and promote this glorious covenant of reformation which Christ will ultimately bring to pass, as we see in Isaiah 19, when he will call the nations, those heathen nations of Assyria and Egypt, unto himself, and he will become their God, and they will become his people. We long for and pray for that time when, the, when God will call Israel, his ancient people, unto himself and the fullness of the Gentiles will be brought in. The third and final point is the conclusion. Here the covenant is concluded with a confession of sin, an acknowledgement of God's grace, and an appeal to God, a searcher of our hearts, that we will seek by His grace to own and fulfill the moral duties found in the solemn league and covenant. This certainly is a moral principle as well that we can firmly adhere to, that uh, we can find throughout the scripture taught. <clears throat> there is blessing, dear ones, promised for faithfulness and judgment threatened for unfaithfulness in the conclusion of this covenant when it says that the Lord may turn away his wrath and heavy indignation and, on the contrary, Establish these churches and kingdoms in truth and peace. Judgment threatened, promise of blessing offered. 
is not the are not the many denominations within this land the unsound doctrine worship and church government the wicked civil leaders and abominable laws that exist contrary to the law of God within this land are these not all due to God fulfilling the judgment that he threatened for obstinate disobedience to his covenant do we not see this being poured out upon us do we not have eyes or should we not have eyes to see the cause of God's wrath upon us it is yet our prayer and certain hope that we shall reap the blessings as a nation and as a national church, that we shall reap the blessings of truth, truth and peace within our nation, within one national church, when God mercifully remembers his covenant with us and pours forth his spirit upon us so that we as a nation take up in love and faithfulness our solemn league and covenant to the Most High God. Let us stand in prayer together. Our gracious God and Father, we pray that Thou would indeed forgive us for our national sins, for our ecclesiastical sins, for our familial and individual sins, where we have broken covenant with Thee, as moral persons. Lord, we pray that Thou would have mercy upon us, forgive us our iniquity. Help us, O Lord, to bind up the testimony and seal the law as Christ's disciples. To renew our covenant, O Lord, with Thee, we pray, our, our Father, pour forth Thy Spirit upon us, for, Lord, it is not by our might, it is not by our power strength that such covenanted reformation will occur, but it is by thy spirit, saith the Lord of hosts, that such will be realized. We pray, our God, that thou would help us to rest confidently, securely under the wings of our Savior who owns us as his people. We pray, Father, for all of thy people, O Lord. We pray that thou would heal the many divisions, that thou, O God, would bring all thy people to unity. We ask, O God, that Christ would march forth and that, Lord, as a nation, he would smite us with his holy judgment crushing, O God, our gods, our false gods, our false religions, our idols that we have erected, and exalting himself. Lord, may during this time in which thou dost pour forth thy judgment as we anticipate thy blessings, hide us, O Lord, in thy sanctuary. Comfort us and encourage us with thy promises. May we remain faithful. May we count it a privilege to be considered, Lord, a sign and a wonder before those all around us. Lord, we ask that thou would hear our prayer today, for we do pray and call upon thee through Christ our Savior. 
Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.